Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A healthy dose of anti-communism helped Billy Graham's ministry grow. Relationships with presidents gave Graham's crusades cachet. We'll discuss how the evangelical movement leverages its access to power. Thor Peterson wants to be the first person in the world to travel without an airplane. So far, he's made it to 143 countries. I'll talk with this ambitious green traveler. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Let's talk about Billy Graham and his legacy. Graham died yesterday at 99. Frank Schaefer knew Billy Graham. His father, Francis Schaefer, was an evangelical theologian and a contemporary of Graham. Frank Schaefer has written a number of memoirs and fictional accounts of his experiences of getting out of the evangelical family business. His latest is Letter to Lucy, a manifesto of creative redemption in the age of Trump, fascism, and lies. Nice to talk with you again, Frank Schaefer. Thanks for having me back on. You know, I think most people, even my age, I'm in my 50s, don't remember when Billy Graham first came on the scene. But he came on the scene kind of with an anti-communism message, uh, Christianity versus communism. And this is why Luce and Hearst, like, puffed him up. And uh, he had a message that they thought would help them, would help the U.S., Well, let's put it this way. I'm 65 and he died at 99. So I wasn't around then either. But I was a child in the 1950s. And I remember Billy coming to visit us at my Swiss home and the mission that my parents ran called the Brief Fellowship. So my first memory of Graham was at nine years of age. And I think that my dad was pretty much of an anti-communist himself at that time. That was very much the flavor of those decades. But Billy, I think, got into the heavy politics a little later. Uh, when he became Richard Nixon's confidant and other people's. And of course, later, he grew to regret that specific kind of party politics involvement that he had after he got burned with the Nixon tapes that recorded him agreeing with Richard Nixon, making some anti-Semitic remarks saying that pornography was sourced from Jews mostly. And Billy kind of went with that, then later regretted that. And I remember sitting in the Mayo Clinic with my dad when he was dying of cancer, Billy came to visit in the hospital room, and one of the conversations the three of us had was Billy actually telling my father that he thought he had made a mistake getting so heavily involved in the early days of the anti-abortion movement after Roe v. Wade in 1973, when I had made a film series with Dad and C. Everett Koop, who became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, which really kind of started the pro-life movement in terms of the evangelical wing of it. And Billy had never signed up, and Dad and he were still talking about it. And Billy was saying, well, you know, I made the mistake with Richard Nixon and I got too close to specifics in politics. It hurt the gospel of Jesus Christ, made it too contentious. And he ducked out and was one of the evangelical leaders, along with Reverend Criswell, who was then the Southern Baptist president, who specifically would not take a stand on abortion. And that went back to Billy's own experience of getting too close to politics. So that's kind of what I remember personally, as far as his anti-communist rants that made Hearst and others want to puff him, as Hearst said, uh, giving his editors instructions to make Billy famous. 
I don't remember that. I wasn't there. I'm like anybody else. I've just simply read accounts of that. It seems like that experience coming to fame with that, though, brought him into the political and people say that he helped erode the wall of separation between the church and the state. And suddenly uh, a secular United States was a little less secular because this guy, Billy Graham, was around all the time. Well, you know, there was definitely an overlap in that era between people like the John Birch Society that were going so far as to say that President Eisenhower was somehow involved in some nefarious international communist plot. I mean, just crazy stuff. Incidentally, that was Koch Sr. of the Koch brothers today who fund so much of the Republican Party. Their father was running this organization that Billy was very aware of and that he had people who were converting at his rallies who were part of. But, you know, you got to remember, he comes out of the Deep South. He comes out of a racist era. And somewhat in his defense, I will say that in 1952, 1953, when Billy was desegregating the rope lines at his rallies and no longer allowing seating for African-Americans in one part of the auditorium and saying, look, you know, there is no color bar at the foot of the cross. At that era, that wasn't a given that he spoke out on that. So, yes, he comes out of that any communist hard right 50s background, but he did depart from it significantly in certain ways. And one of the ways Billy departed from it was simply not going along with the total politicizing of the Republican Party, as has happened, say, on his son Franklin's watch, where Franklin comes out and issues statements criticizing Barack Obama for taking a stand on assault weapons being easily accessible and says, look, you know, we could collect all the assault weapons and uh, it wouldn't do any good, literally parroting the kind of NRA gun lobby line. You know, Billy simply did not do that kind of thing at any part of his career after, say, his anti-communist stuff in the 1950s and then the Nixon run-in he had. Those would be the two kind of highlights where he kind of became a sort of a precursor of what happened later to the whole religious right in an entirety. Where I think Billy set up something of what we've got today is turning the religious presence in America into sort of part of the entertainment industry, going big time, you know, not just on television, but his very, very slick organization and fundraising apparatus that is kind of a precursor of the world into which Donald Trump has fit so seamlessly, but also the phenomena of the rise of the megachurch as a kind of a vast entertainment complex where there's music and movie clips and rock bands and audiences of 10, 15, 20,000. Know, this is very much part of the Billy Graham legacy. So in that aspect of turning American fundamentalist slash evangelical Christianity into a mega business and very much to be confused in people's minds with the entertainment business. You know, Billy, by getting on TV and making these crusades, what they were, I think, began to sort of open the door, perhaps unconsciously, but that's where it went. Well, his business enterprise, so to speak, was in uh, relationship with his political relationship with the presidents and everything. They were things that fed off each other. He worked those things together. He wanted influence on government. He wanted influence. He wanted, you know, Jesus Christ to help out to the president of the United States. And he thought he was doing that, I imagine. You know, I'm not sure. I think that Billy, like everybody else, you know, he was not a flake and there was no scandal attached to his name in terms of running around on his wife, Ruth, who, by the way, Ruth was a good personal friend of ours. And she called our home one time 
when her daughter Gigi, who was 17 at the time, had just been engaged to somebody who her father had kind of set her up to date, who was, you know, a good 15, almost 20 years older than her, who was a big donor to his ministry, Stefan Chivijan, whose father, by the way, donated to my father's ministry of Labrie as well. And they lived in Switzerland. And so when the Grahams came over to visit their in-laws, they would sometimes come by and see us, too. And I've, by the way, I had breakfast with Gigi last summer. We've kept up. Uh, she's, I think, his oldest daughter and getting on in years herself. And so, you know, there's been a family connection with them. But the Grahams suffered from the entertainment syndrome, not just in terms of what they did to the image of Christianity, but the family itself. These were rock stars and their children grew up really with an absentee father. I think Gigi told me one time there was one year when she saw her dad for all of two months in the entire year. You know, when I wrote my memoir, Crazy for God, that I think you and I talked about some time ago, I was expecting a lot of different kind of feedback from people. Well, one of the things I got was a letter from Ruth Graham, not the mother, but the daughter in this case, talking about the fact. And she signed her letter off saying, you told the truth in your book. We, being the sons, daughters, children of evangelical leaders, were, quote unquote, sacrificial lambs. So, you know, one aspect of the whole pro-family evangelical journey on family values and all the rest of this is to understand that the people at the heart of the movement, whether it was Oral Roberts, whose son Richard I knew well, uh, my family to some degree, um, where I became the nepotistic sidekick to my dad in the 70s and 80s. And then when I left, that was sort of just, you know, written out of the movement when I published my first novel, Portofino, that had humor at the expense of that movement. Or Ruth Graham writing and saying we were sacrificial lambs. If you dig under the surface of the family values people, when it comes to the actual families of the evangelical leaders, you find the second generation, whether it's me who has walked away from the faith and is no longer an evangelical, let alone a right wing Christian, or Billy's kids who had all the problems with the divorces and the drugs and all the rest of it that's well documented. Or, you know, Gigi getting married very young and more or less an arranged marriage to a guy who her dad introduced her to, who was the son of a mega donor who wanted this to happen. There's always this kind of weird undercurrent of the actual facts on the ground never quite matching the idealistic rhetoric. But of course, to be fair, that would be the true of Hollywood stars. It would certainly be true of most political families where you have a very high fine public figure you know, but that was something I was intimately equated with because I was experiencing some of that same phenomena in my family, which was a very small thing compared to the giant corporate kind of presence of the Billy Graham organization. But nevertheless, my dad was a very well-known evangelical leader. And that kind of celebrity status was never quite matched by what I write about in this book you mentioned, Letter to Lucy, uh, which was what was going on under the surface. Now, in my dad's case, he was a very different man. And as I talk about in Letter to Lucy, he had such an interest in art and philosophy and culture that that provided for his children and family a totally different way of seeing things than simply the quote unquote preaching of the gospel. And so my dad, you know, when I ran away from boarding school at age 15, where I'd been sent in the UK, took me to the art museums of Italy to kind of reconnect with his son. Unfortunately, you know, Billy never had that kind of cultural aspect to his life. One reason I'm still a person of faith is precisely because my father added that dimension of a larger cultural view of diversity and art and beauty and creativity that I talk about. But in Billy's case, it was this strict preach the gospel let the chips fall where they may. Anybody who doesn't accept Christ is going to hell. And he was moderate only in the sense that he said, we're not sure who's going to hell. We're not sure who's going to heaven. But he believed in a literal hell. He defended a literal hell. He was a fundamentalist pitching himself as an evangelical. But when you dug under the surface, Billy was as fundamentalist in his views 
if not in his manner, as anybody out there. I'm talking with Frank Schaefer, who knew Billy Graham. His father, Francis Schaefer, was an evangelical theologian and contemporary of Graham's. And uh, Frank's latest book is Letter to Lucy, a Manifesto of Creative Redemption in the Age of Trump, Fascism, and Lies. Frank, you know, it seems like Billy Graham, though, was much cleverer than a lot of the evangelical fundamentalists these days. He kept himself pretty vague on a lot of issues, and people were able to project whatever they wanted on Billy Graham. And now, his son is, you know, very pro-Trump, and he's out there defending Trump, even with all the allegations about him uh, having affairs with porn stars and everything. And some people really take a bigger edge than Billy Graham, and it doesn't seem to benefit. Well, you know, I think if you look at it the way somebody from another visitor from another planet might, you know, not assuming anything, you have to understand that what Billy did very well was to set up a paradigm of lost or saved. That was the entire purpose of his ministry. So while he personally would say things that sounded more gentle, like, look, you don't know who's saved and who's going to hell, well, let God judge that, and did not write off whole other people's religions, denominations, the way his son did. In fact, he got in trouble, Billy Graham did, with certain evangelicals and fundamentalists who said that Roman Catholics were not Christians. And because he met with bishops and invited Catholics to work with him on his crusades, they hated him for this. But the fact is, Billy Graham still nevertheless had this paradigm of saved and lost. And to understand Trump or the NRA or the hard right or what's happening to our country, you have to see that what Billy did was give evangelicals this identity of we are saved, Everyone else is lost. Come with me to the Billy Graham crusade so you can get saved too, or you will burn in hell forever, which is a sort of an odd way to look at everybody around you who's not who you know you are, or what your denomination is, whatever it may be. Once that got into American, the American bloodstream, and of course it had already been there from the Puritans onward in certain aspects, but once it got into the mainstream after America had become more secular in the 40s and 50s during the World War II era with women working and other things changing, immigration patterns, Jews coming into the country and so forth. Once this was introduced, then of course when Sarah Palin comes along and talks about real Americans as opposed to people who disagree with her, or Donald Trump comes along and throws red meat to white nationalists and others trying to get back to you know what he calls American greatness, which is really sort of Jim Crow America, That paradigm of you're with us or against us, this kind of divisiveness, very much broke down the barriers of church and state. Because once you have an idea that some people are real Americans based on their politics agreeing with yours and other people are are not, or some people are going to burn in hell forever because their religion is different than yours or even your denomination, this is not, you know, to put it mildly and not trying to be, you know, sarcastic here, but this is no way you build a cohesive society. So Billy, while personally coming across as kinder and gentler, in his theology, was very much a fundamentalist. And what Billy could never deal with was something that, you know, most evangelicals don't want to hear. And that is that in their theology, taken to the limit, and even with caveats of who knows who saved and lost, you know, Hitler may burn in hell because he was evil and he didn't accept Jesus as his savior, or, you know, in some cases because he was a Roman Catholic from an evangelical point of view back in my day. But so does the little girl who was gassed at Auschwitz five minutes later. She's burning in hell, too, because she's a Jew who never accepted Jesus. Now, that's not the way Billy presented it at his rallies, but that is the nub, that is the heart of why he was in the business of trying to get people saved. And that is the idea that compassion dictates that anyone who doesn't buy into the exact formula 
of accepting Jesus as your personal savior, praying the sinner's prayer, et cetera, et cetera, is lost. So however this is all dressed up as America's pastor and all the rest of it, that note, when it is politicized by people like Franklin, leads to a kind of fatal arc of decline of not just civility, but even the ability to have a country as we understand the word. So Billy's veneer of pious civility is long gone now from the white evangelical movement. And it's replaced by Billy Graham's own worst inner demons, if you want to put it this way, that he repented of after he'd become Nixon's confidant and said, well, I'll never do this again. But the fact is his movement moved on. And not only did they do that again with people like Franklin Graham's leadership and Jerry Falwell Jr.'s leadership, where he's asked his student body to arm talk about supporting the NRA agenda and actually carry weapons on campus in case they, quote unquote, come here. And the they he means was somebody he's talking about in chapel, Muslims, very specifically. Um, You know, the cat's really out of the bag. So Trump may represent an era that is the conclusion, if you want to put it this way, of the very natural, logical progression of the, the original kind of fundamentalist paradigm of black or white, lost or saved, good and evil. And with no nuance, no paradox, no uncertainty. So fundamentally, I think what Billy Graham preached during his lifetime was a kind of certainty addiction. I will give you certainty that you know exactly what the purpose of your life is, what will happen to you after you die. You don't have to worry about these things anymore. Just say the formula prayer and you're in. And that has not led to a good place for America, I don't think. I'm talking with Frank Schaefer. We're discussing the legacy of Billy Graham. Frank's father, Francis Schaefer, was an evangelical theologian and a contemporary of Billy Graham. We'll be back with more after the break, and we'll talk about Frank's book, Letter to Lucy. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Frank Schaefer, who knew Billy Graham. Graham died yesterday at 99. His father, Francis Schaefer, was an evangelical theologian and contemporary of Graham's. And Frank's latest book is Letter to Lucy, a Manifesto of Creative Redemption in the Age of Trump, Fascism, and Lies. You know, it's interesting to look at Franklin Graham, and he runs this charitable organization, Samaritan's Purse. They do international funding of things and uh, he goes out there, and they're building a clinic in the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh, and he is, you know, out there to show them the light of Jesus Christ and things like that. But he is building them a clinic, and he says, I love you, and he's trying to get people to be not the sinner anymore. But he does say he he loves these people who are, I guess, going to burn in hell, but unless they jump up on the Jesus Christ bandwagon. But is that, um, I don't know, compassionate enough? If you look at the history of the evangelical movement, of course, it's not unique, because just to be fair to evangelicals, if you talk to Saudi Arabian royals and Wahhabist imams in the Saudi royal family, 
they would tell you the same thing about Christians. And so they would say that, you know, there's going to be a terrible judgment against people who don't accept the one truth as they see it. Meanwhile, in India, uh, you have Hindu nationalists who are rampaging through towns, killing people because they sold some beef and slaughtering them. Unfortunately, what I'm trying to say here is that the problem that Franklin Graham has tapped into and become part of, whether it's going to bat for the National Rifle Association or blasting Muslims or saying that gays need to change their ways and have chosen this behavior and they can cure themselves by accepting Jesus, whatever it may be, or going back to Billy Graham's own sometimes anti-gay statements or saying that people burn in hell. This idea of sort of an exclusive path towards truth is not just a Christian or evangelical problem. And it is one. Where it affects us most deeply is in the current political climate we are experiencing right now as we speak, where we have the evangelicals who have doubled down on supporting someone who's not only in his own lifestyle, but in his method of governing his attack on the poor for medical care for children, leaving tens of thousands of so-called dreamers adrift who have been here since children and playing games with them. Aside from just personal immorality that fundamentalists of my parents' generation would have deemed as absolutely unacceptable, you have policy things that are counter to everything that someone like Franklin Graham would be raising millions of dollars to do in building his clinic. Where he really ought to be building a clinic as well is in so many American cities and rural areas unserved by medical science in these days, in places that have now begun to means test Medicaid for people, saying that if you're poor and you need medical care, we want you to get a job and somehow fit in our idea of of right-wing social engineering of the worthy poor before we're going to help you. You know, this goes back to the Dickensian era of workhouses in Victorian Britain that supposedly Dickens wrote about and changed. We're headed back in that same era with the blessing of people like Franklin Graham. So I would say the problem with his clinic for the Rohingya may be that he's building a clinic for people he thinks will be burning in hell unless they accept Jesus. That's a theological problem. There's another problem, and that is the hypocrisy involved in raising money for relief efforts around the world and then following a president who refers to people who live in brown and black countries as living in S-hole countries and dismisses them at the foot of the cross, as it were, to borrow the evangelical term, or building a clinic for the sick somewhere while your brothers in Christ are pushing in American states to means test Medicaid for the poorest of the poor. That's the underlying problem with supporting Trump at this point. It isn't just the personal lifestyle, quote unquote. It is the program that flies in the face of the very fundamental ideas of Christian charity. I'm talking with Frank Schaefer, and he has written a number of memoirs and fictional accounts of his experiences getting out of the evangelical family business. His father was Francis Schaefer. He was a contemporary of uh, Billy Graham. And Frank's latest book is Letter to Lucy, a Manifesto of Creative Redemption in the Age of Trump, Fascism, and Lies. Frank, tell us a little about this book, Letter to Lucy. Who is Lucy? What is this? Well, the first thing I just want to mention is some boilerplate, and that is it's available on Kindle Fire and iBooks only right now. There will be a print edition coming. We started on the high-tech side because it is a touch book. It is an interactive book. It has about a thousand illustrations, including movie clips and things like Green Day punk rock videos and everything else that download when you put it on your tablet or on your Kindle Fire. It doesn't send you to other links. 
it's one of the only books out there like this right now. And the reason why it came out this way first is because I trace not only my own journey out of the evangelical movement and away from right-wing politics represented by people like Donald Trump, but I think give an overall view of our culture from the point of view of a grandfather, that's me, of five grandchildren, one of whom is Lucy, that I get up every morning and make decisions to help lead in a different direction and really have kind of thought hard about what I want to pass on. And what I want to pass on is the idea fundamentally of the intrinsic worth of beauty that the most inarguable truth of life to me at age 65 with these grandchildren, three of whom I do daycare for every day, now ages nine, seven, and three, is that beauty does not need an argument to support it. So turning off the television set and going for a walk in the forest or down on a little muddy stretch of beach by a river, doing an art project, going to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, where I live, rather than just an amusement park all the time. These things add up to a cultural experience that actually leads away from the entertainment, cheap, lousy, commercialized corporate culture that somebody like Trump represents. So Lucy is not just a fictional character. She is my granddaughter, Lucy. And she also is the Lucy fossilized remains of one of the first transitional beings into the human form back in the evolutionary history of our race. And so kind of I'm giving her an update, that Lucy, the one in Africa, saying, look, here's where we're at today. But I'm also telling my granddaughter, listen, you know, given a choice, we don't have to choose between Donald Trump on one hand and rabid evangelical fundamentalism on the other. There's a lot to be learned from art, from beauty, from music, from decent parenting, from caring for children by not plunging them right into the electronic media age. And ironically, of course, I'm saying all this on iBooks because of the high-tech platform they offer. So I know that speaking of hypocrisy, it's a little bit crazy, but the book is a real roller coaster of an experience. Visually, I teamed up with Ernie Gregg, who's a wonderful graphic designer and, and video designer who has made my writing live through the illustrations, the videos, the TV show clips from Breaking Bad to The Sopranos to you name it that I talk about. And so the book, OK, this sounds pretentious. I'm sorry to say it, but I think I chart a course toward what I hope would be an American renaissance that would sweep away this kind of cheap, easy sad, lowest common denominator approach to not just education and child rearing, but now to politics where everything is a glib kind of ridiculous tweet. Um, so I also talk about my parents, Francis and Anita Schaefer, and the access to art they gave me and how that has lasted and the contrast with the direction of the rest of the evangelical community. So the book is memoir. The book is an appeal for a creative and artistic approach to child rearing. And it is a kind of a how to response on the creative life from the point of view who himself, someone himself, that's me, is a writer, an artist, and how this fits together with my own journey of faith. And that may sound convoluted, but by the end of the book, I think people would get the point that beauty matters and there's a better way to achieve experiencing beauty in our lives than the cheap entertainment culture and the politicized world we now live in. Sounds terrific. You know, one of the last appearances Billy Graham made was at a birthday party and at his table was Donald Trump and Melania Trump. They were there at a birthday party. I think it was 95 at the time. They were saying happy birthday to him. We, I saw clips of it on television. Did Billy Graham really take a ride like the country did to where we are today? He kind of journeyed along. A lot of people who were Democrats hopped on with Nixon. Um, you know, some hopped on with Reagan. Some people are Trump supporters. When it comes to Billy being a Trump supporter or not, 
you know, one can't say I can say, though, that I know some of the family and it's been a long time since Billy was completely together uh, in just terms of the aging process. So I doubt seriously that he knew who was sitting there singing to him. The fact of the matter is looking at Trump, though, you know, Trump is a con artist from my point of view and a very flaky individual who will always head in any room to the spotlight. And that would have been the place to be at a birthday party would be sitting next to Billy Graham if it's his birthday party. I think what's more interesting is who put him next to him and why was he there? Well, obviously, he was being included because he was somebody on the right of American politics who was already being courted by people like Franklin and other evangelical right wingers far right wingers. You know, the glow that Billy cast at that meeting was probably not chosen on his part, very much a strategic move by Trump and part of a larger picture of a shift to the right by Billy's own son and so forth. And I would just say the contrast for me visually of seeing a picture of Melania and Trump sitting next to Billy Graham was that, you know, I remember back in the day that Billy was talking about how you know, whether it was dancing or card playing or drinking or Roman Catholics or communists or premarital sex, you know, this was a very strict fundamentalist evangelical. So if you wanted to kind of examine the arc of where evangelicalism had gone in following Donald Trump, you could take that picture and put quotes from Billy Graham over his lifetime in terms of the moral life, the Christian life and so forth, juxtaposed to Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr., and others justifying what Trump had been doing with his life and his policy based on the fact that, as Franklin says, somehow this was God's will, that God had given us this president. If you took Billy back to 1965 or 1973 and you showed him, you know, news clips or articles about who Trump was and said, you know, could you ever envision a day where the people who came to Christ at your crusades would become the backbone the voting white American evangelical backbone who would put this man in power. I can tell you from my personal knowledge of Billy Graham, he would have just laughed in your face. He would have chuckled and thought you were joking. It would have seemed impossible. But kind of like the frog being boiled to death by turning up the heat a couple degrees every hour, that is what has happened. Evangelical leaders back in Billy's heyday never, never could have pictured the day when this would be okay. And I think that's the interesting lesson to draw from that kind of visual picture of the two of them together. Frank Schaefer is the author of Letter to Lucy, a manifesto of creative redemption in the age of Trump, fascism, and lies. And we were talking about his book and about Billy Graham, who he knew with his father, Francis Schaefer. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good talking with you again. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with a Danish man who wants to be the first person ever to visit every country without an airplane. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The greenest world traveler on the planet right now might be Thor Peterson. He's attempting to do something no one has done before, travel to every country in the world without using an airplane. 
He's doing really well. It's taken several years, but he's through North and South America, Europe, and Africa. He's traveled to 143 countries on his way to 203, I think. And Thor is currently spending a lot of time in Lebanon. It's the country that is he has spent the most time in, and that's where we reach him right now. Nice to talk with you, Thor. Well, it's very nice to talk to you. Thank you for that nice presentation. Tell me about why you wanted to do this. I was drawn to it because I'm interested in green travel and you're taking freighter container ships across the ocean and things like that. But why did you do this? Why did you want to do this? My my background lies within shipping, logistics, and transportation. So that's what I've been doing with most of my life. And one day I received an email and there was an article attached and I read it. And a few days later, it dawned on me, no one in history has gone to every country without flying. And that just kind of got stuck in my head. And then that developed over the next 10 months. And we had our project ready, Once Upon a Saga. And then I was on my way. So in the beginning, this project was really just every single country, no flights, come back home when you're done. But the project has changed a lot. Um, it, it was really just almost like a robot project. Just next country, next country, next country. No less than 24 hours in each country. Next country, next country, next country. And that went on for a few weeks before I was really, really tired and I couldn't (laughs) see the points within what I was doing. (laughs) And then it dawned on me that these countries were worth nearly nothing without the people that I met and and the people who have been living and residing in these countries for hundreds or thousands of years. And it slowly turned into a people project. So it was originally a country project and it became a people project. And then I started having focus on how are these countries and what does it mean to live in them and how do they see themselves? You know, we we look at a lot of countries around the world, which we have never been to, but we're already opinionated about them. And that opinion doesn't always serve right when I visit the country. So I try to promote the countries in the best possible way and show that people are just people. Well, what country was really changed your mind about the country? Which one really had a different feel than you thought? Well, actually, there are a lot, and some of them are surprising and some less surprising. You know, the United States of America is, is kind of a big surprise because apparently not everyone is eating hamburgers and running around with guns and stuff like that. The, the media does paint countries in interesting ways. I reached uh, Sierra Leone, which is in the western part of Africa, and I was in Sierra Leone at a time when there was still Ebola, and we were fighting the Ebola and trying to ensure it was not spreading uh, around the world. And, you know, to the people who were living there, it wasn't panic. You know, there was something they, they learned how to live with. And, uh, and life went on. You know, they were still taking selfies and they were, they were still uh, trying to watch Game of Thrones. And uh, within an hour of being in Sierra Leone, someone invited me to go to a wedding. So, you know, love still exists. And, and I was dancing and having nice food and thinking this is so strange in a country like Sierra Leone. And, and the list goes on. Like I was in Sudan and to discover that Sudan is a really peaceful country and it has a 500 mile coastline with the red sea and it has more pyramids than egypt and that the people are as friendly as they are and inviting and modern society the list is really really long with 143 countries (laughs) you've gotten a lot of attention for traveling by freight and container ships this is something that almost no one does everyone jumps on a plane every time they want to jump an ocean why did you choose to go container ship well, sometimes I really just don't have a choice. I, I try to go with public transportation whenever it's available. So I go with trains, I go with buses, I go with a shared taxi. Sometimes I even walk a little bit. 
But uh, connecting Europe to uh, North America or South America, there aren't really any ferries. I guess you could find a cruise ship if you were lucky, or maybe someone has a sailboat and they're going across. But the container ships, they go across every day. I guess more than 100 container ships leave the east coast of the United States every day and go eastbound. So I tried to work on that solution, and uh, I've been lucky to come on board 12 ships by now. What did you learn about traveling by container ship? Well, I learned that it's a business like anything else. You know, you, you might come on board and say, this is a great adventure. And, and uh, it supposedly, it was a great adventure the first time. But these guys, this is their job. And to ask to come on board a container ship is sort of like going into an office somewhere in the world and saying, I see there's space on the floor over there. Can I sleep there for three days? And they, they would laugh you out. Like these guys, they work really hard and life on board the ship is really just get up in the morning, have your breakfast, get to work, work all day, have some more meals, work, 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 a little bit of recreational hours in the evening, but then back to sleep. So you're ready for the next day. So it's really just work and sleep and eating uh, for the most part. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a big risk for them to take you on board. You could have a strange disease or you could fall overboard or you could be crazy or seasick or you could touch buttons or destroy something. And, so, and by saying no to you, they, they don't risk any of all of that. So basically, I just get on board and I try not to get into the, in the way of the daily routines. And I enjoy the views. The sunsets are magnificent. And it's a little bit like a holiday where I'm moving between two points and I don't really have to do anything else than relax. Well, what gives you enough cred to get on a container ship? Because I mean, I know you're a goodwill ambassador for the Danish Red Cross. I'm, I'm sure that makes yeah. you look good. You've got a story. You've got a website and things that you can show people. But is there something that really puts you over the top when you are begging a ride on a container ship? Yeah, yeah. I think it all narrows down to incentive. And in the case of container ships, then the incentive that I try to give is that if they have a company magazine, then it could be interesting content for their magazine to have a story about a world traveler who's going around, who has a look at what life is about on the ship and uh, talks to the captain and the crew and goes and see the machine and then the engine room and so on. And also I have uh, social media, so uh, thousands of people are following from all around the world on the different social media accounts. And if I post something nice about them, that's goodwill for them. Because a lot of these container ships, they do, uh, they take a lot of heat on not being uh, clean or throwing garbage overboard and so on. And that's actually not true in the case of the, the professional container lines. They, uh, they do everything they possibly can to have their ships as efficient and clean as possible. They don't toss anything overboard and so on and that sort of stuff. So I can offer them a different view uh, or the world a different view on what life is like on the ships as well. I'm talking with Thor Peterson. He's attempting to do something no one else has done before, travel to every country in the world without using an airplane. He's currently in Lebanon. He's traveled to 143 countries already. Tell us about your predicament in Lebanon, because when you want to travel to every country, you've got to get visas, and you're having a hard time right now. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I actually had a look at the, the passport index today for 2018, which says which passports are the best passports to have in the world. And me being Danish from Denmark, I have a passport that ranks in as number three, which is uh, nice. pretty good. Um, that opens up 160 countries to me in the world, uh, at least theoretically, where I should be able to get into the countries without a visa or where I would be able to get the visa on arrival. However, in many cases, the visa on arrival is if you're flying in, 
and I'm going around <laughs> without flying. <laughs> so I end up at land borders and then it's a different situation. Now I'm in Lebanon. I've been to every country in the world, which is west of here. I have 60 countries left and I'm on my way into deeper into the Middle East right now before the rest of Asia and then the Pacific and New Zealand and Australia. And Syria is a country which has been at war for for seven years now. And that's not to say that there are no safe places in Syria, but obviously they are very careful about who they're letting into the country right now, as, as they should be. They don't want someone to come in and pick up a gun, for instance. And uh, they also want to protect. It would probably be a scandal for them in, in uh, Syria if something should happen to me and, and that story would go around the world. So um, it's not an easy visa to obtain right now. And you've been at it for, what, three months? Uh, well, we're getting there. <laughs> I've been at it for 71 days uh, today. So uh, it's, it's a long time to wait. Ouch, that's, that's got to be a little... I imagine you're getting to know Lebanon really well on the upside. <laughs> well, Lebanon is an incredible host, actually. You know, there are certainly worse places I could be stuck in the world than Lebanon. Lebanon is it's a peaceful country in mountains, and the ski resorts are open right now, and they're magnificent. I've been out skiing twice, and... They have history that stretches back more than 10,000 years with temples and castles and it's and the food is good. And, you know, I'm really, really happy to be here if, if I have to be anywhere for 71 days or more. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of the country by now. <laughs> it's not a very big country. I imagine you've taken a lot of train trips. You, you're in it for the people. It seems like trains is an awesome thing. It is. Uh, trains are amazing. I've been in trains that I hardly could believe uh, for one reason or the other. When I reached Congo, I got on board a train, which was, I, I guess they finished building the, the rails and, and got the train running just a year or two before. It was state of the art. I don't even think we have something like that in Denmark. Um, on the east coast of Africa, I was on a train which looked like it had just been pulled out of the museum. And that's, uh, that's a different kind of experience with cockroaches and whatnot. And they tell you to sleep uh, hugging your, your luggage because someone might come through the windows at night running around on the roof and stuff like that. You meet tons of people. One of the best train rides I had uh, was actually in, uh, in your country. I, um, I took a train from Washington, D.C. up to Chicago, and then I took the California Zephyr uh, down from, from Chicago to San Francisco. And I made a lot of good friends on that train. Uh, you get to talk to people in a completely different way. And I'm still in touch with a lot of those friends. Some of them I actually consider really good friends today. Well, that sounds terrific. And I, I imagine that'll make more people want to take the California Zephyr from Chicago. A lot of people look at it and say, well, it, it's pretty costly. It costs more than an airplane. Well, so listen, I'm traveling around the world on a $20 per day budget. Uh, which is not a lot for anything, really. Um, but it works because there's a motto within this project, which is a stranger is a friend you've never met before. And that just kind of sounded nice when we built the project uh, back in 2013. But it, it turned out to be true within a couple of weeks of, of traveling. And when I got on board the train in Washington, D.C., I sat next to a guy named Art, just a stranger, a nice guy. And we're sitting next to each other. So, you know, like, hi, what are you doing? Where are you from? Uh, how's your day been? And blah, blah, blah. And once uh, we uh, got off the train in, in Chicago, uh, we were friends. And then when I checked on to the California Zephyr, I had the cheapest ticket I could have. I was supposed to sit in a seat and sleep uh, in the seat and, and I had to pay for my meals. 
But uh, the stewards on board the train, they said, no, no, this is not your seat. And they directed me over to a cabin. And uh, I got to the cabin and inside Art was there and he was smiling and saying, listen, I have this cabin. It has uh, two beds and two seats. I have it all to myself. You're a nice guy. I thought I might as well just uh, rearrange your ticket if you don't mind. And meals were included. And then I suddenly had a bed. And that's really how the world works a lot of the time. Well, hats off to Art. <laughs> I'm talking with Thor Peterson, and he's attempting to travel to every country in the world without using a plane. His website is Once Upon a Saga. You mentioned you're trying to do this on $20 a day. Uh, did you have a, a funder or a strategy, or uh, do you have a Kickstarter campaign? How does this work? Yeah, that story is a long story, but the, the, the rundown of it was that it was a sponsored project from the beginning. A Norwegian offshore company called Ross Offshore uh, covered my budget for the first 30 months. Then the oil prices there were long for a really long time, so they had to pull out. And then I, uh, I spent all my own savings and then I took a loan and spent all of that. Then I sold some of my possessions and took that money and spent that. And then I borrowed more money and and I spent most of that. And then we did a crowdfunding campaign, which raised some money. And uh, now I'm looking for a new sponsor or I might start a new uh, uh, crowdfunding or Kickstarter or something. Well, what about uh, the Danish Red Cross? You're a goodwill ambassador of the Danish Red Cross. Is that, does that mean anything? Um, it means a lot to me. The Red Cross is the world's largest humanitarian organization, and it started in 1863 and has since then spread out to 191 countries around the world. So what I do is I try to promote the Red Cross in the, the most positive way uh, that I can think of. Sometimes the Red Cross takes a little bit of heat in the media, but that's how the media works. The majority of what the Red Cross does is truly phenomenal. So I've met with the Red Cross in 141 countries now, either Red Cross or Red Crescent which is the same uh, humanitarian organization. And uh, they will offer me a cup of tea and uh, they will tell me some stories, but, but I'm mainly there to promote them and not really the other way around. And they're not funding anything within this project. And, and that's also important to me that they don't, because the way that media works, I wouldn't be surprised if they did fund this project, that some journalist, he might uh, see his opportunity to write a story about how you donate money to the Red Cross and they fund some crazy traveler going around the world. So we try to keep uh, the finances separated from the Red Cross and, and then purely try to promote them in the best way, tell people that they can donate money that they can volunteer or they can share some nice information on social media. It sounds like this project uh, has become less of a challenge and more of a lifestyle, but it will end at some point and you'll have, you'll go, have gone to every country. You're doing pretty well. And what are you going to do then? Believe it or not, I have a fiance <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she's been out to visit me 15 times so far. She was actually here in Lebanon uh, over New Year, and we celebrated New Year together. She's using a plane. She is using a plane. She's definitely using a plane. <laughs> we, uh, we got engaged in Kenya on top of uh, Mount Kenya, which is the second tallest mountain in all of Africa. And, uh, and we're doing really well. She's wonderful. She's supporting me. And when I go back home, if we're not already married before I get back home, then we will get married. We'll start a family. I hope that I'll be writing a book or two. Um, while I travel, I do public speaking. I speak at events and schools and companies, and I hope I would be able to do that professionally. If all of that goes south, then hopefully I can go back on my old uh, profession, which is shipping and logistics and, and build a life for myself there. 
Well, congratulations on what you're doing. You've made a lot of people very envious, I think, of your of your globetrotting <laughs> and travels. Except this part about going to Syria. This one, that, that one, might be a little little stretch for some well, people. So, can, if I can just say that, listen, I've been to I've been to Venezuela, I've been to Central African Republic, I've been to Somalia, I've been to South Sudan, I've been to Libya. And, you know, those those countries, they do possess something which is very, very dangerous, but there are still just people there and they're trying to make their their life go round. And I'm sure it's the same way in Syria that they try to get their educations. They try to feed themselves. They want to watch Game of Thrones. A lot of them take selfies and post it to Facebook. So I, I think I'll be all right. I'm sure you will. Thor Peterson is attempting to do something no one has done before, travel every country in the world without using a plane. He's in Lebanon now on his way to Syria, had 143 countries. You can follow his travels at the website Once Upon a Saga. He has a blog and can, we'll send you the blog and everything. His website is Once Upon a Saga. Thanks a lot for joining us and happy travels. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the Olympics. There was certainly a lot of anticipation. It was going to be the Peace Olympics. North and South Korea were going to have dialogue. And a lot's happened. We will digest what's happened with Bruce Cummings, professor of history at the University of Chicago, who we talk with frequently about Korea. And we'll think through what happened with the politics of the Olympics. Hope you can join us tomorrow. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.